Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro. ¿Dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is part one of our reaction to episode eight. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Jane, host of Invisible Tears. I'm here with my co-host, Amanda and Drew. And this week, we are going to do a reaction to episode eight, which is um, my story. So I'm going to let Drew start because I'm sure he has a lot of questions for me. All yours, Drew. So with this week, it was the telling of your story, and Jen was able to capture the emotion in which you told this story for the first time that I've ever heard it. I can definitely say I've always heard the storytelling 
when you've told it almost from that second person point of view of just telling what happened to you. Um, but this was the first time it sounded like you were telling it from that first person point of view. It was just very emotional, captured it great. So I do want to just commend Jen for being able to get you in that mind frame uh, to be able to tell the story in this way. And you for being able to tell the story in that way as well. You even said afterwards, and she captured it and put it on the episode that I've never told it that way. And so I think that you are just in this space to be able to tell it that way. So commend you as well for being that open. Thank you. Yeah, it was at the end of a very emotional weekend. It was like the perfect moment. And that's when we got in our car and and I told it. And yeah, I have to agree. I don't believe I've ever told my story or talked about my attack the way I did that day. It was extremely emotional for me. And listening to it was also extremely emotional for me to listen to. Both me and Jen knew this is the right time and right place. Let's go do it. And that's what we did. We jumped in our car and and we did it. She did an amazing job with just reading me and saying, okay, this is the time I need her to tell her story. Yeah, because when we first recorded your story, it was the first recording we did. We wanted to capture your story and telling it. But with that too, there were so many nerves apart from, you know, first time having our voices recorded, telling the story, because it was a little bit further down the process as far as when you were, have been talking to Jen and everything, like there was a lot building up to then her hearing your story. Is that correct? Oh yeah. I mean, we had been up in Claremont recording for the whole weekend And um, it was towards the end of the weekend. I mean, we had gone to the cemetery. We have gone to some of the places where the bodies were found. We had already gone to some of the places where we believe they went missing. We had already gone to the library. So this was like the very end of the weekend, a very emotional weekend. I don't want to say emotionally draining. It was just... um, so many emotions throughout the whole weekend. And and this was like the very end of our weekend or my time together with Jen. It was a weekend I'll never forget. Some of the things that we talked about and did in some of the places that we went, it's definitely a weekend I'll never forget. So getting into the attack, there were definitely some different questions that I think maybe we've asked before, but others kind of came up while listening to it again with that different atmosphere. It was interesting that when looking back, and this question came up because of our discussion we had with Crawl Space last week, um, as far as sensory overload with the traumatic event, it was interesting that to kind of circle back to that going, your first instinct was to fight when you were in the car. But then when you were out of the car, the second instinct was the flight instinct. And with that too, it does seem like You weren't feeling a whole lot. The seeing of things um, is is not clear, but your audio sensory seems to have been at its highest point. Um, With you mentioning, you know, you didn't really feel the stabbings, but you could hear the blood gushing out. Um, You could hear him walking away. So with that, there was a couple of questions coming up. When he was walking away, what did you hear? Now, were you hearing the footsteps kind of getting almost to like what type of footwear was he wearing when you heard the footsteps was it shoes 
Was it boots? Was it possibly almost hearing like a, a studded boot as well? You know, the click clack like you hear with the studded uh, snow tires. Was there anything in particular that you remember hearing when he walked away? To give people a visual, I was laying on pavement. Um, it was a parking lot that was paved. So um, when I heard him walking away on pavement, it was almost like I could hear a little bit of the stones or the rocks as he was walking. I don't think that it was like studded shoes or anything like that. He may have been wearing work boots. Now, work boots today are very different than work boots were back in 88. I mean, they're like made very differently. Their soles, I'm sure, are, are made very differently today than they were then. But I, I can hear, it was like, I can hear the footsteps. If you lay down on pavement and you hear somebody either walk up to you or walk away from you on pavement, it's like you can hear almost like a shuffling of maybe a few stones here or there where he may have kicked a few or you know how you walk and sometimes you kick a little stone or a rock or something. I could almost remember like hearing a little bit of that. I don't remember. Now, I could be wrong. I think there was some place that we saw or some interview I gave it might have been when I was hypnotized. I had said that he had, I could hear him walk away fast or swiftly or something to that extent. I don't remember him like running away. I don't remember hearing the footsteps, um, you know, like he was running. I remember hearing like a casual footstep walking away from me. Now, when you were outside the car standing with him before you ran to route, uh, ran to the road, Route 10, when you saw the car coming your way, was were you facing Route 10 or was your back to Route 10? I was facing Route 10. My back was up against my door. So I could see the headlights coming down. From Keene to Winchester? Yes. Now, when again did you notice that he had pulled into the parking lot? Oh, gosh. I believe it was when I got my second soda and I was walking back to my car. I believe is when he had just pulled in. And when I got in my car, he had finished parking his vehicle into the space beside me. And was he going the same direction from Keene to Winchester? You know, I don't remember. I almost think he was coming from Keene, but I don't exactly remember. I don't think I even really noticed or saw. For what it's worth, as I've tuned in, I actually picked up that he was coming from Keene to Winchester. Even though Jane didn't see that, I picked that up in message. And I don't doubt that at all. Because there was a thought that I had, especially when we go back over, you know, the different cases. And when trying to look at, like, the story, the biggest thing that we can't come up with, well, with the Hitchhikers, we know, you know, where, how the killer showed up. But with some of the other cases, we don't know exactly how or when the killer showed up. The one constant that we do kind of see is... There's payphones at a lot of the areas of abduction, including yours. Now, there is a thought in my mind is we always talked about him going out and hunting, you know, looking for that opportunity. But what if he wasn't necessarily hunting by driving around and looking for those opportunities, but rather was hunting stationary? Now, if we look at Gamarlo's, if you go down towards the end of the building, 
there's the post office, which there is always cars parked there in the corner overnight. You don't think anything of it. There's cars coming and going, dropping off postage, at least I remember from back in the day, always seeing the early morning drop-offs of mail. It's very dark over there, too. It's not lit. Yeah. And with there, you have a great view of both sides of Route 10. And also, if somebody's pulling up to use the payphone or the vending machine with still staying hidden, as the car pulls up to that side of the building, they wouldn't shine any light on a vehicle. Now being parked there, he would be able to see anybody coming in or out of that parking lot. And with how the lighting was, he'd be able to tell who was in the car and how many people were in their car. So the thought was, if he did see you pull in, saw that you were a single female pulling up towards the payphone area, is that when he pulled out of that side of the parking lot and came up around to that second entrance, and that was sort of a question is, did you happen to notice anything over in the quarter? Did you happen to hear the vehicle before you saw it pull in to the parking lot? I didn't. One of the things that I thought of is that's a rather large parking lot. And there's the store where I was parked. And then there's one, two, three, four more rows behind me of parking where I was parked. And then there's another part of the parking lot where you actually see tractor trailer trucks parked there. So it is a large parking lot. He could have been parking towards the back of that parking lot watching that payphone. Now, one of the things that really struck me, like it kind of terrified me in a certain sense. After my attack... John Philpin was sitting in that parking lot watching the payphone and the soda machine. And a single female had actually pulled in that night to get a soda out of that soda machine. And this was not long after my attack. So to see vehicles in that parking lot would not be unusual. Um, It wouldn't especially back then, virtually no crime in Swansea or no major crime in Swansea. I was 22, no, you know, no internet. So you don't know that there's a serial killer or or danger out there or whatever, like you do today. If I had pulled in and there was a vehicle parked over there way on the backside of the parking lot, it would not have piqued my interest whatsoever. Right. So he could have very well had been sitting there stalking that payphone. Same like he could have been doing at the rest area with Barbara Agnew at Leo's Market um, with Ellen Freed, the Bird Sanctuary with Kathy Milliken. And as we discussed, I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago with Linda Moore, was it possibly he just kind of sedimentary on the, uh, the river looking at the houses in that area? Exactly. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. One piece I'll add since you just mentioned it, Drew, about Barbara Agnew. So the only people that know this piece of information is Jane, yourself, my daughter, Abriana, because she took a visit there with us and Jenna Mel. I have gone to the rest area on I-91 North where Barbara was last seen and where she was taken from four times. Every single time that I go there, I am drawn to a specific place 
in the back right-hand side of the woods for the listeners who've never been there. Very, very small rest area. As you pull in, there are two lanes. The first lane that's on the left is specifically for trucks. The lane that is on the right is for cars, and that's where the entrance to the rest area would have been. It's larger. That's where you're directed to go. As you're pulling into the right lane of this rest area, back on the wood line, there are a couple of paths that lead. There's like some, like a rock ledge and things like that. There are a couple of paths that lead back into the woods. Every single time I have gone there, I have been drawn to a specific point in the woods where when I stand there, I can see where the rest area would have been. I can see the entire parking lot. I know somebody was waiting there, or at least that's what I've picked up. So as you mentioned it, Drew, I just wanted to put that out there. That's a piece of information that I've picked up every time that I've been there. So I I think specifically for Barbara, that's that's a piece of information there. Yeah. And every time that we were there, it was the exact same spot that you went back to. And even Abriana went to that spot. Yes. And it's kind of on a hill, but you can see where the cars pull into the rest area from that spot. You can see where the building was. Yep. You have a view of the whole parking lot. Yep. But with the wood line, the way that it is, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see somebody there. When you mentioned, Jane, the one time that we went there with Abriana, so Abriana is a psychic medium as well. So I wanted to get her read on the situation as well. And as we were walking towards, she ran ahead of me and ran to the exact spot that I always go. So that piece is sort of confirmation for me that whatever piece of information that is going to lead us with, that that is true. Um, So when I started to think about how the killer shows up, I started to think about it almost from like a cinema type of view. When you're looking at a story, the killer doesn't just appear. You know, it's not like a Friday the 13th where all of a sudden the killer's just there. He has to come from somewhere. And with some of these cases, it's not quite clear how he just shows up. So, you know, one of the thoughts was, is he possibly parked on the side of the building at Camarlo's in the shadows? And that's where he's more of a set of sedimentary type of stalker rather than driving around on the roads. When I try to think about this type of stuff, and even Jane, with your case, throughout the entire life of you know listening to this, I always try to picture it in my head as if it's a movie. I'd never put myself in the first person point of view of him or you, but more of seeing it from just a few feet away from different angles to see what it looks like. So with that, the question always arouse of, was he truly just driving down the road and saw you? And that just happened to be, you know, perfect circumstances. Or was he actually sitting in the back of the parking lot watching? And when starting to think about that in regards to all the other cases, it was like, actually, five out of the eight attacks, that theory holds a little bit more water than the fact of he was driving around. Honestly, it makes a little bit more sense. And it's one of those I don't think I've ever actually heard it brought up like that. Because I know even with the talks of Philpin, it was always, he's a hunter. He's out hunting. He has a trap line. But if you think about him being a hunter, what if his car is his tree stand and he'll park it and just sit in his tree stand? Kind of makes you think that like with the Ellen case, something kind of got her attention. I wonder if he pulled in and parked further away from her, parked his car, and it kind of gave her the impression that he was 
going to use the phone waiting for her to get off the phone? Or was there a car already in the parking lot that she didn't even really realize until all of a sudden she noticed movement in it? And that's when she said, hold on, I got to start my car. Maybe. That was two hours. She was in her car for two hours. I was in my car five minutes. Yep. But it's one of those. Being a hunter, if he's used to sitting in tree stands, sitting there for hours on end, not making a peep, it's not that difficult. Maybe with your case, he was realizing you were leaving the parking lot and had to act then. Same with Ellen's. He didn't act until he saw that she was getting ready to leave the parking lot. Yeah. Drew, when you mentioned and reiterated the hunting and then mentioned the tree stand, immediately that pressed on something in me that really reiterated Barbara and the situation surrounding Barbara for me. When I go up and I stand in in that location, in that rest area, that is the exact feeling that I'm feeling. It's almost like a stand, but also kind of like crouch down, stand, but also crouch down in patience and waiting, just like a hunter would in a tree stand. You pick your location and you wait for the prey to come by. Maybe his locations were payphones. Because wasn't Eva Morse dropped off near Leo's Market, just across the bridge? We don't know. So Eva Morse was hitchhiking from uh, the plant where she worked. To Claremont. Yes, or at least up Route 12. And the last that we knew that she was dropped off on Route 12 by someone, and then somebody else had to have picked her up. We believe that she was en route to Claremont, either to go scope out the next job or to visit the girlfriend. I too believe, I believe a lot of these places he sat and watched. Of course, some of them he picked up. I believe that we're hitchhiking, but um, I think a lot of the places um, he may have been sitting, sitting and watching, especially where I was at Camarillo's at that time in 1988, you know, I was 22. It would have never piqued my interest or I would have never noticed it. I would have had no reason to have um, been concerned about a vehicle sitting there at all or even paid any attention to it. And as you mentioned, Jane, I think Drew had a little bit of a, as he was spitballing, mulling over some like ideas about the hitchhikers in thinking about how he could have possibly been stationary and hunting from a place. So he was trying to think through and work through the whole hitchhiker scenario. You had an interesting take too this morning, Drew, on the hitchhiking scenario. Right. So some of the hitchhikers were definitely going from one area to another, um, some long distances. What if they were picked up? at their original last seen location, but dropped off at, say, a convenience store because that was the farthest that that driver could actually go on that route. And it just happened to be where, you know, the killer was camped out that day. And then he quickly picked them up to, you know, quote unquote, take them to their next destination. So he wasn't necessarily out on the road trying to find these hitchhikers or came across them, but necessarily was at the right spot when these hitchhikers were you know, transitioning from one point of transportation to another, especially when looking at Elizabeth Critchley's part. She was picked up way down in Massachusetts and was on her way home to Waterbury, Vermont. Now, the odds of finding that one driver in Massachusetts that was going to be going all the way to Waterbury are probably very slim. But if they were willing to drive them up to, say, the Vermont border and be like, yep, this is where I'm stopping, 
here's a convenience store that has a payphone that has everything you need to wait for that next stop. And then this guy just happens to be in that parking lot waiting and sees that opportunity. So he might not be actually out there driving around hunting, but he has this location with this payphone. If I wait here long enough, the opportunity will arise. So that would make him an extremely patient person, monster, and very organized. Would you describe him that way? Patient and organized? I would, yes. And especially when you look back at the time of the disappearance versus the day of the week, he very well still could be a family man that just happens to work, work third shift. So the daytime attacks are during the weekday. That's when his opportunity is that he, no family's around. And then on the weekends, it's, it's always in the middle of the night during his quote unquote work schedule. You know, was he making up that he was out actually, you know, working the same shift schedule or was it, hey, you know, what? I'm used to being out of the house at this time. I'm just going to be out of the house. I think the theory or I think at least the idea of how to tie in the hitchhikers versus all of the payphone locations. I think it does make sense. And while that may be the case, it may not be. I mean, we don't know because there's unfortunately no witnesses to, you know, tie this theory or anything like that. In thinking about it, when you're hitchhiking, you're essentially just trying to get toward, even if you can't get to your end destination, you're just trying to get towards a destination. So it would make sense, especially in Critchley's case, like you mentioned, Drew, yeah. from Massachusetts all the way up to Water Waterbury, Vermont. I mean, that's a hike. So if this person was like, yeah, I'll take you up to, you know, I'm only going this far, but at least get them somewhere close to 91, then maybe from, you know, this rest area or maybe from, you know, this convenience store with a payphone or, or something where, where there's travelers, maybe you can pick up a ride from there. It's an interesting take because I don't think I've ever heard it mentioned before. Same here. Um, I never even thought that maybe there was um, a couple of people that may have picked up Elizabeth Betsy while she was hitchhiking. That is a very good possibility that she was picked up by one, brought to a certain part of, or brought to 91, and then he was there to pick her up. It's too bad if there was one that picked her up and then, then him. I wonder if this would jog somebody's memory to come forward and say, wait a minute, I remember picking up a hitchhiker. I remember, um, you know, bringing her to 91 or whatever. I can remember her saying that, you know, where she was going, where her destination was. Yeah, That would be interesting if, if somebody would come forward and say, oh, I remember that back in the 80s. Because probably somebody from Connecticut or whatever never even heard about her going missing and her being murdered. You know, you never know. There was an internet back then. You know, not everybody read the papers or listened to the news. So you never know. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. 
If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.